Hey guys, welcome to Hope It Helps. Today's guest is Dr. Hanin Jarrar. Dr. Hanin is one of the leading experts in the field of child psychology and has been working in the field for over 15 years. She received her PhD in child psychology in London and then went on to work in hospitals in the UK before moving back to the Middle East, where she opened and led therapy clinics in both Jordan and Dubai. She has also helped develop special education sections in mainstream schools, train teachers on inclusion strategies, design and plan community-based intervention plans, and spread awareness utilizing workshops for parents. In this episode, Dr. Hanin and I discuss the differences between adult and child psychology. We talk about family dynamics and the roles that parents play regarding their child's mental well-being, and the detrimental effects of social media and apps on children's growth and development. And the last message she wanted to share with all of you was to be kind to one another and to be kind to yourself. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Hanin Jarrar. Hello and welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your time. I really, really appreciate it. So guys, for the people who don't know, me and Hanin got connected through uh, a friend of mine and Hanin is a specialist in child psychology. And as you guys know, on the podcast, I've spoken to doctors and therapists before, but we haven't really tackled uh, the child psychology aspect. So I'm really, really excited for this uh, conversation today. Um, but Hanin, before we get into everything, why don't you give all of us just a little bit of background about yourself and we'll take it from there. So I'm a child psychologist. I've studied my bachelor's in psychology in AUB in Lebanon. Uh, and then I went ahead and I did my master's in cognitive and clinical neuroscience uh, in the University of London. And then uh, I got a scholarship for my PhD as well in the same university. Um, so I did my PhD in child psychology as well. Um, and I specialized in children during my PhD. I then went on to work in a hospital in London called Great Ormond Street Hospital, which is one of the best hospitals in London. And it's, it's one of the best also for training. So we used to see over 80 cases a day. Uh, so it was wow. really good learning opportunity. I then went on, I was recruited to Dubai. Um, it was my first recruitment was in Dubai. Uh, and I helped set up a clinic here uh, that was already set up in, uh, in the U.S. And it was a clinic for children with autism. It was called Stepping Stones. Uh, very, and then very quickly, I became the regional director there um, and I was heading several clinics. Um, and then I had to take a break uh, to finalize my uh, thesis for my PhD because I was my PhD was still ongoing while I was doing all this work. Um, and during that period of time, when I took a break, I wanted to be in a place that's very peaceful and very serene. I went back to Jordan, my home country. So I was writing my thesis. And I was meeting a lot of people and making a lot of connections. Um, and uh, then I, as soon as I finished my thesis, I opened my, I set up my own clinic in Amman, Jordan, because I felt like there was a need for a clinic there. And that's where I met my husband as well. And I got married. Um, and ironically, after a year of our marriage, my husband then got a job in Dubai. And that's when we moved to Dubai. Uh, I had to sell my shares of the clinic that I set up, although it was, you know, one of the best times of my life. Um, it was a great experience setting up a clinic in Jordan. And that's when I moved back to Dubai again. And I started working at Kamali Clinic as a child psychologist and head of the early intervention department. And then finally moving to Insight Psychology, where I am now as a child psychologist as well. Um, I have since uh, had two kids, Kenim and Lean, and um, almost now I have uh, 15 years of experience as a child psychologist. 
very long version of an introduction of who I am. No, please. I love I love hearing people's stories and it's so funny how you're moving around from place to place. And so I know. On. It's just Dubai has, It's. I think it's written in the stars. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be that way. And congratulations on the kids, of course. Um, it must must be so interesting as a... So this is something I think about when I speak to doctors and therapists, therapists in particular. So as a person, I go to a therapist because I'm looking for help. And the therapist is supposed to have all the knowledge and the tools to help me with my issue. But I also, you realize that like sometimes you forget that therapists are people too. So we all go through, we all go through the same things. So just because I might have the tools to address a, your problem doesn't necessarily mean, do you know what I mean? Does it, does it Yeah, it doesn't you? necessarily mean that I can use these tools on myself. Exactly, exactly. That's a I, completely, it's a correct thing to think about that just because I can give you advice doesn't mean that I'm, I have a lot of parents who come to me and they're like, oh, you must be the perfect parents. You must have perfect children. You must have no problems. And I'm like, no, I go through the same things. I go through the same issues. My kids misbehave all the time. I have issues all the time. I have issues that are out of my control. And sometimes it's even harder because as a therapist, you know what you should be doing and you just can't do it just because you're so emotional or so in love or so in the moment or so wrapped up or so stressed. So it's even sometimes worse because I know that I'm doing something wrong, but I still can't control it. So yes. And um, as therapists as well, it's very important to know that we do therapy as well. So as a therapist, I have to see a therapist myself, uh, if not weekly, biweekly to be able to work on the issues that I have. And it's very healthy also. It, it, it sheds light. It makes me also um, put myself in my patient's shoes. So how does it feel to be a client or a patient? How does it feel when someone is, is asking me questions? So it's also important for my development to go to therapy sessions. Um, sometimes when I share this piece of information that I do therapy as well, people are like, well, that's not a good sign. Like, why not? What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. Um, we still, unfortunately, there's a, there's a still a stigma, a taboo around receiving therapy and what it means when you need to be to go to a therapist. No, 100 percent. I totally agree with you that there is still a stigma. And on that point, um, I think a lot of people do see in that way, like, for example, as a therapist, if you're seeing a therapist, they would see that as something negative because I think therapy is a, has a negative connotation with it still in the in the I think in the general public it's still seen I have a problem therefore I'm going to get help it's not that but on the contrary I'd rather have a therapist that is has his own therapist because I know they're putting in the work to take care of themselves and that's how they can do the best job to take care of myself that's what I think at least what would you say the thing is that we we were borrowing this from the medical term or from the medical world that yeah I have a problem. I have a stomach bug. So I'm going to a doctor and so he can fix my problem for me. And as such, we start thinking that if I'm going to see a therapist, then there's something wrong with my brain there. There's something wrong with me. Eventually, that means that I'm crazy or I'm not OK or I'm not well. Uh, it's not the same. It's not the same. Medical health and mental health is a little bit different. So when you're going to see a therapist, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. That doesn't mean that you're crazy or that you, you can't be a functional individual, that we all have things that we're really, really good at. And we all have things that we would like to work on. Everyone. No one is perfect. Um, so 
the, the, the difference is, is that you have decided that you would like to work on these different things that you would like to grow, that you would like to, if you have an anger issue, you would like to work on it. If you have, if you have anxiety that you would like to be less anxious or less worried or less afraid sometimes, or if you have issues with your, the way that you communicate with your family, you would like to work on that. That's the only thing that, that, that when you go to see someone, that's what it means that you would like to work on yourself. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. And I have to say that to a lot of the kids that come see me, Miss Hanin, is there something wrong with us? What, what have we done wrong? Why are we here? You know, they have, they have this fear. They have this feeling that there's something wrong with them. That's why they're seeing some, a therapist or someone, you know, and it's part of the stigma and it's, it's still there, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and I'm so happy you brought up that point because I was a perfect segue to uh, my next question. So on that point that you just said, because that this is something I was thinking about. When you're an adult and you're going to therapy, it's a conscious, you're making a conscious decision to go get help for, for whatever issue you have. Now, when it's a child, obviously you don't have the awareness to come to that conscious decision yourself. So your your parent brings you because they think you might have a problem. And that's why I was thinking, like you correctly said, do they come in with that, like a negative mindset or a negative connotation behind it because they're like, why they start asking like, why am I here? Did I, was I bad? You know, did I do something wrong? Are my parents upset with me? So how does, how do you, I guess, start addressing that? You're asking about consent for therapy and consent for therapy is very, very important. And you have to have consent. You have to have the buy-in of your child before you start with anything. So the way that I address it is, um, you know, I start with asking, uh, let's say you were a child, you're coming to see me. So Khaled, what are you good at? Tell me things that you are good at. So you can say football, playing, drawing. Oh, amazing. We start with all the positives. I'm really good at taking care of my sister. I'm really good at sports, football. Excellent. What are some things that you find difficult? Say Arabic. Arabic is everyone. <laughs> everyone finds Arabic difficult. Arabic. Um, sometimes I get in trouble in class. 99% of the time when I ask this question, what do you find difficult? Um, children report to me the same concerns that their parents report to me. So if their parents are here for anxiety, the child would say, sometimes I get scared at night, or sometimes I worry when my parents drop me off at school. And if they don't state them, I try and dig and I say, do you ever get in trouble for anything? If it's a behavioral issue, they might say, oh yeah, I get in trouble in class because I talk a lot or I don't pay attention or do you ever get scared do you ever get worried because of anything they might say yeah sometimes I get worried at night okay Khaled would you like me to help you with this would you like me to to help you become less scared or less worried or uh, would you like me to help you manage your emotions better in the in the classroom and the answer is almost always yes sometimes it's a no and if it's a no then I tell parents I can't see your child because your child doesn't want to come see me and I can't force them. It can't be like it's a punishment to go see Ms. Hanin or it can't be forced upon the child. He has to be an, an active individual ingredient in the healing process. Otherwise, I can't work, you know. So my first goal in the therapy is to get the buy-in, is to convince the child that I am on your side. This is not punitive. This is not punishment. I'm not shaming you. I'm not guilting you into thinking that you're bad. I'm here as your coach. You are my boss. And I am someone that's here to help you. If you do that within the first session, you're good, you're gold, and you you can you can start the healing process. So you set the goals from the first session. What are your goals? What do you want me to help you with? They can say, I want to sleep by my own. 
I don't want to be scared at night anymore. I want to go to school like my friends because a lot of them feel it. You know, they feel different. I don't want to get worried at play dates. I want my mom to drop me off at a play date and not worry. These are my goals. I'm saying, great. I'm someone that I've studied so long and I've, you know, supported the children and I can help you with these goals. Let's start session number one. And a lot of the times, by the way, they say yes. And then the first session, they don't want to come. I don't want to go to Miss Haleen. I'm playing here. So again, I have to, again, remind them, why are you here? Why are we doing this? Your why? What is your why? I always bring it into the session so that, because if you force them into it, you're not going to get anything out of, you know, the therapy. So again, a long answer to your question. <laughs> how do you, yeah, what, what, how do you get consent? And this is called consent for therapy. And it's very important for the therapeutic process. Yeah, no, th- but I love these long answers because there's so much detail. I'm learning so much, like uh, just listening to you. Um, I think something in- that I didn't consider, but you make a good point, is the consent. Because as a, I, th- but I think that you, if you take that principle, you can apply it to a large, a much larger time. Th- that consent can be applied to anyone because if you, if I can't, if I told a friend of mine go to therapy, and they do it, but they don't really want to do it number one it's not i don't think it's going to be successful because you're going to you're already resisting that you know the need to go but number two it's interesting that with children you keep bringing it back to the why and i would have thought that i think your why and like really understanding what you're trying to address i would i would have thought that it would you wouldn't have the awareness as a child to truly understand what the that why would be do you, do you know what I mean? You'd be um, surprised. Yeah. You'd be surprised. Yeah. I have an intern that's just joined me and she's amazing. Um, she's um, studying psychology and she's really good. And we were talking today. I had a little child who's four and um, I had questions for the four-year-old child. What makes you happy? What makes you sad? What makes you angry? What do you find difficult? And we were just wondering, do you think she, she can answer these you know, very complex questions? You'd be shocked. You'd be amazed at the answers that she gave. You'd be amazed. I just saw her for 10 minutes because it was the first time. And the amount of information that I took from her, kids are very insightful. You just need the tools. You just need mm. the right tools. And this is what I do in the training. I understand how to get the information. Because if you ask them straight out, uh, you know, what is your problem? You're not going to get it. But if you ask them to paint a picture or you do a play play therapy with them where you're playing with puppets and you ask them to be their character and you see what they do, or you read them a story and you ask them to fill in the blanks, you'll get so much out of them. So this is, this is what's nice about uh, our job. Sometimes some parents tell me, oh my God, in 10 minutes, you found out what I've been struggling for seven years to find. And this is, these are the tools that I use that it's not because I, I have a special connection or I know, I know them better. No, the mothers know their kids more than anything. It's just these tools are very powerful and they have been designed to get information out of the children, information that is very important for therapy um, because they're, they're sometimes limited children in their verbal uh, communi- and communication skills. Yeah, uh, that's that's so interesting. That uh, it is. I'm, I'm and surprised. just to go back to that to your yeah, point, please. sorry about about consent and about someone being very like part of therapy, even for adults, it's very important. Uh, I don't know if you've watched The Crown. No, I haven't, but um, I know a lot of people who love it. It's amazing. At one point, the sister of the queen. So this is fictional, of course. Uh, her sister wants to see a therapist or a psychologist and asks for them to send her the psychologist to the palace 
And the psychologist or the psychiatrist, I can't remember, says, no, that you, the sister of the queen, has you have to come to the clinic. And she was she was shocked. She was like, what do you mean? I'm the sister of the queen. She has to come to me. And her friend was like, I'm sorry, I tried. She's the best in the UK. But apparently it's part of the therapy process. Why? Because coming to the clinic, mm. you coming to the clinic and saying, I'm here willingly. I need help. This is 50% of the work done. At say, admitting that you have a problem and admitting that I'm willing to come to you for help. There you go. 50% solved. Now let's start with, if I don't have that, I can't begin. Yeah, no, that's, that's such a, that's such a good point because in my, in my field, so my field is hypnotherapy. So that the point you just mentioned about the, the number one, the, to accept that there's something, you know, the issue number one, but to have the belief that it's going to work, like you correctly said, that's 50% of the work done, you know, because if you don't believe it's going to work, no matter, you could be the number one therapist in the world, it's, it won't. Uh, like, and I've tried it and I've seen it and I've, you know, researched all this. So I, I know the, the belief in that is something that's so important. Uh, I wanted to come back to one point about, because I was thinking, you as a child psychologist you're used like i'm trying to compare the difference between seeing an adult and seeing a child because the tools of this i i believe the, the tools are the same but i know for sure that there's a different approach when you're working with an adult for example compared to when you're working with a child so what are the i guess changes that you have to make what are the considerations that you have to make when you're dealing with a child rather than speaking to an adult um it's it's a bit different in that uh, when it's with children, um, you have to kind of speak their language. You have okay. to do it in, in their mindset. When I'm doing therapy, therapy has to be really fun. It has to be engaging. There's a lot of games that we play. There's a lot of videos that we watch and worksheets. Almost like when a teacher teaches a lesson, I have to think that way. I have to think because you're, I do cognitive behavioral therapy. I do CBT and CBT it's, it's a lot like a science lesson where the first bit is psychoeducation. I teach the child what happens in their body. Why are they feeling this way? Why are they thinking this way? Uh, thoughts are linked to, to feelings. Uh, feelings are linked to behaviors. So I really have to adapt it like it's a science lesson and make it fun and um, you know interesting. And if it's not, then I've, I've lost them. I, I won't be able to teach them anything. Uh, so it's quite different. And, and sometimes uh, I get 14 year olds who really want to see me or 17 year olds, you know, they've heard and they are like, please, please see our child. We know that you can help them. And when the 18 year olds or 17 year olds come to see me, they're like, why are you talking to us like that? <laughs> We're not kids. I'm very like, you know, animated and such. So you, I really have to adapt myself. And I don't think this would work with adults. Um, so it's quite different, the, the strategies that I use or the tools that I use uh, in terms of therapy. Yeah, so that's, it's very interesting that how you have to address it or tackle it when you're dealing with children. It has to be, it has to not feel like what it is in a way, right? Yeah, so that they, they're, more they're more comfortable with it and you can really get the, the I guess, the outcome that you're trying to get. But I'm curious because do because sometimes I like I obviously parents know their children the best that's what they say but I also think as pair like parents in general can sometimes maybe misdiagnose or misinterpret their their child like for example I'm sure in some cases you've had 
the uh, the parent might think the child needs therapy, but in actual fact, the child doesn't, you know, need need therapy. So how do you how do you start helping? I guess parents become better judges of you know their children and their mental states, and if they they actually genuinely do need therapy. Yeah. So as part of therapy, because we're dealing with children, parents are a very important part of part of therapy. Okay. So for me, I always do a parenting session uh, once a month. So I see the child, let's say, I see, usually it's once a week where I see children. So every fourth session is a parenting session where we sit and we brainstorm. I, I tell them about what I notice in the session and I tell them about what could have been done better. And then we, we think about ways that we can um, eliminate or help eliminate the, fa- the, the, the problem. So let's say we're working with anger. Anger is one of those emotions that is, it's, 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 the, the, it's the tip of the iceberg. It's never just anger, what you see. It's always other emotions that are going underneath the surface. It's guilt, it's frustration, it's be feeling overwhelmed, it's feeling jealous. It's, so as parents and guardians, I help them try to find these issues so that we can help eliminate the anger, change the environment, reduce screen time, uh, increase sleeping, um and i help them identify the signs sometimes when you're in it because they're the parents and they're in involved in the issue they can't take a step back and look at things from a different angle so i help them sometimes do that because i'm not involved when you're emotionally involved it's it's hard for you to do, to do the balcony view and to to watch things or view things from 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 a from a different angle so it's very important for therapy for the parents Sometimes I need to do parent training. So to train the parents on unlearning some of their parenting styles that they've learned before and how to do parenting, not the right way, but the best suited for their child. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a very important point. I didn't consider that when you are working with children, the parent is an, a component of that whole, that whole thing. Because you know, not a yeah. lot of therapists do that, but it's very Re- important. Really? That's, a, yeah. that's surprising. <laughs> it depends on your training. It depends on how you've trained. Uh, I found that from training and from experience that the prognosis of therapy becomes so much better when parents are very heavily involved in, in their child's therapy and their child's. Because I see them once a week. It's one hour in their week. I need someone, a co-therapist, to help take these strategies. Um, our job is very funny. My, my job is always to be out of the job. I want to empower the parents and the children with the strategies so that they don't need to come see me, not because it's anything wrong with, but I believe that they're, they have this ability to do these things by themselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a really important point when, like, like we said, when dealing with, with children and empowering, like you, I like how you said, my job is to be out of the job is to, you know, be there at the beginning, put in the, the processes and the system or uh, teach the techniques and the learnings and let the parents continue that journey for, you know, for the child. What do you do? Do you ha- have you seen issues or have you seen cases, I'm sure in your experience, that a child might come into therapy, but the cause of whatever the issue is, is actually the parents. And what if the parents are in denial that like, uh, no, no, no way. It's because I told him this, that now, you know, he has like anger problems or he's upset or whatever the case might be. What do you do then? Because I think that's 
that can get a bit touchy. So yeah, we get a lot of cases like that. We get a mm. lot of cases like that where um, the parents come in and they're like, my child is misbehaving. They're, they're, you know, they're always in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, help me find the issue. And as a therapist, I can tell from almost the first or the second therapy session, I can tell the family dynamic. So I have them all in one room with me and a big room. Actually, maybe you can see the room. It's a bit messy now, but I don't know if you can. So this is okay. our family okay. room where they all sit. And the reason why we have this done this way is that I want to see the family dynamic. I want to see how the dad speaks to the mom and the mom speaks to the child and the child then reacts and what happens because this is all part of what's going on with the child. So if I identify that in the family dynamic, there's an issue, let's say the father is super critical or the mom is super critical of the child, etc. Then I note it, of course. And then in the parenting session, uh, I try to, I can't say, listen, Khaled, your problem is that you are mm. super critical because then he's going to be defensive. Then he's going to be For like sure. me, I'm a, I love my dad. So I, in therapy, you try to ask guided questions to get the person to say, am I being, maybe because I'm being super critical, maybe that's the reason, do you think? And you're like, maybe, maybe that could be part of the reason. Let's think of, if we think about it in another way, if we're less critical, of Omar and we try to highlight the positives or we try to reward him for the, the good things that he does and try to be less critical of his uh, mistakes. What do you think will happen then? Let's try that. Let's have this as homework for this week and just try and see what happens. And then they go off for a week, they try it and they're like, oh, it was amazing. It's really good behavior. Thank you so much for highlight. I never knew, but why do you think I'm super critical? Let's analyze. How was your father with you? Oh my God, he was, you know, it's all, no one does anything because they're bad or because they're a bad parent. Everyone thinks they're doing the best for their children, for themselves. And you can't be like, you are a bad parent or you have done this because, you know, you're doing this to your child. You, you'll lose them. You want them, you want to be very compassionate and kind because you want them to be kind to themselves if they're making a mistake, you know, not punitive and and kind of harsh and um, unforgiving. So when you do that that way, it takes a longer because it's very easy for me to say, I think this is what's going on and you need to fix it. But it won't make, it won't make lasting change. It won't yeah. have a lasting impact. Yeah, I think that's a very important um, point about when you when it, the issue is actually from like stemming from the parents to I love how you guys have that family room because you get a very clear view of or like just some snapshot of this is probably how the situation is. This is the relationships between each other. Ex exactly, exactly. And I think that's the most authentic. That's the best way to look at it because that's what actually is going on. You know, no one's putting up a front and to, to cloud your judgment. But also, I like how you said you can't. You can't accuse the parent like, yes, they may be at fault, but you have to find a cre creative way around it. So what I've noticed from all the therapists I've spoken to and in my my work and in my research is when you're dealing with adults in therapy, I'd say from my experience, I cannot believe how much of the issues a person could face today, no matter their age, stems from childhood like uh, unresolved issues, unresolved beliefs that you've carried through your whole life that you have not been aware of. So I was starting to think 
if that's the, if most of our problems today, the, let's say, stem from our childhood. When you're a child, you haven't had much time to to have those experiences for it to be for me to pinpoint. Oh, when you were two, for example, someone said this to you, and this is why you now have this belief and so on. So how? What have you found in your experience? Because I'm I'm really curious to see what what you think. Yeah. So with adults, when you're working with adults in the CBT frame framework, you try to identify the core beliefs. Like for yeah. example, I have been through trauma where my mom has passed away, and now I have developed a core belief that love equals loss. So now, and this core belief is is, is in my subconscious. And I can't access it. And but I have lived with this core belief. So now every time I love a person, I get anxiety because I have this core belief that love equals loss. So I'm I'm afraid. So this is this is what you try to do in therapy with adults. You try to go back to core beliefs, etc. With children, it's it's very different. Um, some of them haven't developed core beliefs yet. So um, ex- unless there is trauma, for example. Uh, a lot of children in Lebanon, for example, after the explosion, now have a core belief that the world is not safe. The world is not safe. Something bad can happen any minute. Any minute, your world can be shattered. And this is huge. This will cause anxiety and depression, etc. So this, these kind of kids, yes, they have core beliefs that you need to work on. But a lot of kids that come see me, it's, it's, it's a different case. So, for example, they have anxiety. Now, some of the, the anxieties stem from core beliefs that I'm not good enough. You know, so um, let's say they were bullied in the past and the bullies were saying, oh, you're fat, you're ugly, or you're not, uh, you're not worthy. So they start believing this about themselves and then they develop a core belief that I'm not good enough. And if you think that you're not good enough, I'm not good enough to leave the house. I'm not good enough to go to school. I'm not good enough for friendships. Everything becomes affected. So with some cases yes there are core beliefs that i need to uncover just like adult therapy and work on with some cases it's purely autism or a behavioral issue or adhd where a child can't focus can't pay attention it doesn't have emotional regulation skills and i have to target that so it really depends on the case it's case by case Mm. some is very similar to adult psychology and some is completely different i tend to do more behavioral therapy with the kids Okay. And okay, that's really that that makes a lot of sense now because um on the point that you said that even as a child the the, the interesting thing is you could have formed that belief for example like you said that I'm not enough but you don't you don't you're not aware of it. You're not aware of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, something could have happened when you were if you, let's say you're And as a this. therapist, once once you bring it from your subconscious to your conscious, then you can be like, "Hold on, I don't think that's very true and then you start asking the child or teenager to try and challenge this belief okay you have a core belief you that you are not good enough so let's try and challenge what what tell me what have you done this week that makes you feel good enough what are you doing that right now that is worthy etc etc and so you try and challenge and uh, untangle this core belief to create a new core healthy core belief that i am actually i'm good enough yeah, which no, takes time, but is doable. Yeah, it, it like you said, it does take it does take time, but like it's hundred percent doable. I know I when I went to 
uh, therapy, my my thing, my issue was not good enough, and I didn't realize it. And this was when was, this was last year. I didn't my for my whole life I carried it with me, and I never understood what was going on until I went to therapy. I'm like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand where this came from. Now I understand what was what was ca- what was causing it. But I think that's something that a lot of a lot of people face. I think that's a very common belief that a lot of people have typically. Yeah. But I've never understood what I've never understood is why does that I'm I'm almost surprised, like shocked at how many people have developed that belief, just like I I did. I don't know why it seems quite common for that, for people to think that they're not enough. And I've never understood why. Because um, unfortunately, the world is harsh and very easily you can start receiving messages from the world that you're not good enough. Messages from teachers messages from uh, uh, parents that very good willingly give you criticism when they they not they're not they don't mean it but they think that this is the best way to get the best out of you but if they keep telling you for example uh, look at your brother he's doing that or or why aren't you fast enough or why isn't your room they're saying this but actually what you're hearing is I failed again. I'm not capable. I'm not able. I'm not good enough. Or if your friends make fun of you, or if you're not doing very well at school. So it's very easy for things that happen in your life to inadvertently give you a message that you're not good enough. It's very easy. And unfortunately, we tend to be very super critical on it. We all have a, a bully in our head. It's like, you know, you were late to the meeting or, oh my God, you missed the turn. What are you, an idiot? Or, oh mm. my God, you, what, 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 I can't believe that, that you wrote that in the, you know, you have this bully in your head that's always saying negative things to you. So it's very easy to start believing it and saying to yourself. So that's why on the, on the contrary, it's important to do things that you're good at, like hobbies, uh, finding work that is fulfilling for you so that you are receiving other kind of messages like, look, you're capable, you're able, um, you're doing well, you have good reviews, you're, you get good feedback from people that love you, um, you're a good friend, you're a good husband, you're a good father, you're, a, you know, so these things will counteract. Now, the problem happens when you don't have these good things anymore in your life because of different things, sometimes because of lockdown. That's why we have a mental health crisis right now, because lockdown stops you from doing things that make you feel good about yourself so you end up only with the mind bully nothing to balance it out and that's when mental health issues happen like anxiety depression etc yeah um i think that's a great point that it's it is very listening to you explain it, it is very easy to be for those messages to come in and for that belief to be um developed like you said but on the point that you talked about how because I'm I'm reflecting on my experience. You were saying that if you, you have all these messages telling you no, or like that you're not good enough. But if you have all these good things going on, it's easier to it's easy it's it's more it's easier to start, you know, breaking breaking that belief. But in my experience, what I realized was I I had all the good experiences. I, I like I was very lucky to have them and I was aware of them and so on, but that belief still didn't change. And that is that's why I'm that's that's something I'm interested in because I learned I noticed in my experience that even though I had all these positive things going on uh, from work from whatever it might be I still had this core belief underlying all of it and it wasn't until I went really 
like deep and like back you know back to my past to really understand where this came from only then was i finally able to break through that because the thing is the core belief has a way to preserve itself so once the core belief ha- is formulated that you're not good enough all the good things that happen in your life don't matter they stop uh you start saying like if you get a, a good grade on a test no no the test was easy not i'm smart or if if a friend says oh thank you Khaled, that's an amazing gift you're like oh she's just saying that to be i'm not a good friend she's just saying that to be nice and to be polite so your perception on things once the core belief has been formed your perception on things changes and this mm-hmm. core belief preserves itself it's not until you're aware of it that it surfaces but the core belief by the way is not very easily formed so i'm saying that we can prevent it from forming by having a balance of good things and but once it's formed i, I don't want to say that's it but it kind of keeps itself alive by creating these thinking traps like mm. um exaggerating the bad things that happen to you so that you you never think that you are good enough you think that oh no 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 i'm not um, i scored a, a goal in the, in football practice no no it's not because i'm good enough it's because the goalkeeper was weak so it 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 shuns everything and mm. to preserve itself you know it's not until yeah. you realize that and you're like this is false that you started changing your perception on things yeah i think that is something that is so important to remember and i didn't even consider it is that like you said the core belief has a very good way of preserving itself i think that's the perfect the perfect word for it and like you said it will distort it distorts your perception because it will exaggerate the bad and it will minimize the good so you lose on both ends so um but that's i love what you said about that that preserving that i've never heard it put in in that way and i think it's like reflecting my it's so true it's so so true and unfortunately even anxiety you know this mm. is how it preserve itself um if you get one one little sign of something going on like oh, see this is i knew this was going to happen and it, it, it continues so yeah unfortunately but with <laughs> therapy you, you you become very aware of all these things yeah and i think that's something that's super important is you can't address something that you number one aren't aware of but number two what i've what i've learned in my experience is awareness is great so now i know there's something but until i understand it only then can i break free from it because then then it all makes sense then you can be like ah now i know where this is coming from like to to know i had to be aware that i have anxiety is one thing but if i don't know where did this all start and like understand why i have it now i can break free from it and start you know um moving forward yeah for sure and i wanted to come back to because you mentioned something earlier about um adhd and so on so do you think in your how do you think kids nowadays a lot of them are being on that something on that thing in particular are being misdiagnosed with that just because people like doctors or psychiatrists think they'll just give them some you know medication but they're just like you know because they can't focus but they're at the end of the day they're kids of course like focus is not the number one their number one priority or what what they're good at anyway so what would you say about that uh yeah there's a lot going on in the media that oh their adhd does not exist it's this um it's this thing that scientists have or psychiatrists have created da, 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 da. that is hugely false adhd is very real it's very present and if you think that it's false or i just urge you to sit with a child who's 10 or 11 or 12 who has adhd and try to teach him something anything 
let alone get him to plan his day or organize his homework or etc. These children, um, supposedly, they have to be focusing, attending, planning, organizing, and they're not. So they're failing in every aspect of their life. They're getting, again, messages from everyone. You're not capable. You're not able. Sit down. So it's really difficult if they don't get the help. And sometimes, yes, we need to medicate. Not all the time, but sometimes we need to medicate. Why? Because ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder. What does that mean? That means that there's some part of the brain that is underdeveloped. There is something called the frontal lobe. It's right here. Mm. And this part of the brain is responsible for focus, attention, planning, organization, and emotional control or emotional regulation. When we're born with our brain, our brain is very small when we're born. It's almost a fifth of its original size. This part of the brain is not developed. It develops with time. So a one-year-old, you wouldn't expect a one-year-old to know that they shouldn't put their hand in the, in the electricity. But a seven-year-old would. Why? Because at seven, this part of your brain is developed. With ADHD, this part of the brain doesn't develop. So you'd have a seven-year-old who's putting his hand in the socket or who, who doesn't have the awareness that they should wait before looking left and right or who can't sit and focus. He's seven, more than five minutes or one minute. I have students that are they're seven and they can't sit for one minute. How are you supposed, how is he going to prosper? How is he going to function? How is it, let alone be an active individual, et cetera, et cetera. So because this part of the brain still hasn't developed, we need some help from medications to develop. Now, are we over um, uh, diagnosing it? Some psychiatrists are because they're not very well trained. But is it something that does not exist? You can't say it doesn't exist. Mm. ADHD is real. It exists in cases. Are they over prescribing medication? Maybe in some part of the world, yes. But is medication necessary? For a lot of cases, it is necessary. Is medication alone the solution? No. no. Medication and therapy are very important in these types of cases because when you give the, the chemicals that are supposed to develop this part of the brain, you're also supposed to teach the child strategies on how to calm themselves down, how to focus, how to use a timer to remind themselves of, the, of their homework, how to use checklists to remind what they should be doing next, how to use strategies to calm themselves down. So, it should be therapy and medication at the same time. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. I never knew that ADHD, that like the actual details and science behind it, and why it's it causes you know that the inability to focus and to pay attention and for planning and uh, cognition and so on. So I, I didn't know that. So it's really really interesting, and I and I totally agree that it's never just um, medication. It's medication with therapy if and when if and when necessary of course um and coming on to just moving just moving on from that point so i watched your uh, interview from it's from a couple of years ago but you were talking um while you were at kamali clinic and one of the questions um she asked you was about social media and you said the two biggest problems with social media are the number one the, ex the exposure of content at probably inappropriate ages number one which can, you know, lead to get, you get all these different messages, you know, as a five-year-old or six-year-old, whatever it might be. And number two was also the, especially when you're like in the first seven years, that 
it's going to affect you, like your development of your brain if you keep constantly have being stimulated in, in that way. So I'm curious now in the work that you do, how many cases of children that you see that whatever their mental uh, mental health or like their issue is has come as a result of social media. I'm really curious because I know like I have a I have a sister. She's 16. Like if you take the phone away, life is that life is over. There's, that's it. It's all done. So I could I know nowadays kids from like like we have, we have my cousins have kids whatever like that like iPads like phones whatever they could order from Amazon at like six like they can do all these kinds of things. So I'm like what? But I'm sure that is not in the long term gonna have a probably a positive effect. So I'm curious how many cases would you say are a result of social media today? It's so sad. Really? This is this is one topic that not only frustrates me, but makes me sad. Really, really sad. Because mm-hmm. I feel like there is a whole generation that has been affected by this um this 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 really big issue and no one's doing anything about it. Governments are not setting controls. Uh, developers for sure will not set controls and parents unfortunately are really unaware of the risks of screen time on their children they are they know you know uh, some minimize it uh, but really I feel like there's a lack of awareness on how much screen times can do to our kids I always say that screen times are like dessert right in and of itself the screen time technology is not bad. It's allowed us. It's opened our frontiers. We're, we're now, it's part of our life, et cetera, et cetera. In and of itself, dessert is not bad. Chocolates are, you know. But when they become, when you have chocolates for breakfast and chocolate for lunch and chocolate for dinner, then that's a problem. If you've had a healthy meal and you've had your rice and your chicken and your broccoli, et cetera, and then you have a piece of chocolate, that's fine, you know. And that's, that's my point with a lot of children and teenagers. Um, a lot of children and teenagers, it's become their lunch, breakfast, snack, and dinner. It's they're on it all the time. And with these kind of things, it's a very high opportunity cost that we're paying. What is opportunity cost? So when I'm on the screen, what am I losing out on? What am I missing on? What is the activity that I should be doing as an adult, as a child that I'm missing out on? That's my opportunity cost. How, how much am I paying for myself to be on the screen time? And it's huge because um, we have happy hormones in our bodies and happy hormones are produced when we do certain activities in our life. And I've talked about this a lot. So you've got serotonin that is produced when you're with someone that you love, when you are with friends. That's why having a cup of coffee with a friend just feels so good because the happy hormone serotonin is produced. You've got adrenaline that is produced when you're doing sports and when you're active and when you're out. Um, You've got dopamine. This is a tricky hormone uh, that is is released when you achieve something, when you um, uh, do a good work, when you get a good grade, even when you do dishes. You know that sometimes people, you know, therapists describe doing dishes for people because you feel like you've achieved something in your life, you know. Um, Also, when you're out in nature, um, happy hormones get produced when you're when you're out in nature. So 
if you're sitting in front of a screen, none of these hormones are being produced. None of the happy hormones are being produced. The only hormone that's being produced is the short-lived dopamine. So it makes you feel good that you're on the screen, that you're seeing something, you got the next level or someone sent you a message, but it's very quickly absorbed by the body. And this is what makes these devices addictive. And the people that have developed these apps, the app developers, the game developers, the YouTube developers, they know this. And they've developed these apps according to this. And I've said this before, a lot of people come to me saying, we'll pay you a lot of money as a child psychologist to tell us how to make this app more addictive, literally. I'm like, wow. this is super unethical, guys. No, There are no guidelines, no regulations mm. that stop these people, you know? Mm. And at the end of the day, they want your time, your children's time, because that makes them money. And what are we doing? We're, we're putting our children in front of these screens for hours on end watching content that is dangerous, that has wrong messages, that does not develop themselves in any way, that's causing them to feel just more anxious and more depressed because they're not having these happy hormones in their body. And this is the sad effect of screen time. So I have kids that come to see me that are anxious and depressed and I ask them, how much screen time do you watch a day? Nine hours we're on the screen. If you're, if you're on the screen for nine hours, uh, when, when will your body feel active? When will your body feel happy? When will you develop social relationships? We have a whole generation right now that they don't know how to talk to each other. They don't know how to have a conversation. You have two people sitting in the same room having conversation on their, on their devices because social skills have been affected. Um, well-being skills have been affected. Their self-image and self-esteem some of these girls and boys are looking at photoshopped images over and over again, thinking that this is the truth. This is how a lady wakes up. So I'm glad that I look this way today because I, this is how people look like in real life, not photoshopped, dolled up, etc. Or the influencers and, and the people that always show that they're always happy and they're always in love. And so you look at your life and you're like, damn, I'm like, I'm, I suck. Yeah. This is what a lot of teenagers now think of themselves, that they're not worthy, they're not pretty, they're not skinny enough, they're not. So it's causing a lot of issues. If we don't have this addiction, uh, probably I will be out of the job, I think. <laughs> you, you asked me how much I think I can't. Uh, I can't say precisely what is the causation because I don't have enough research to say this social media use was linked to this. But I'm sh I am positive that a lot of the kids that come see me is due to how much time they are wasting, let alone the effects on sleep, on obesity because they don't move, on their medical, physical health. It's just, I think there's a crisis that no one is mm. talking about. It's, it's the next pandemic, I think, that we should really be worried about more than anything else. Uh, is this kind of effect that that social media and screen time is having on our kids? Yeah, um, I think so. So many points to touch upon. Um, number one, I like how you said. I love the analogy you used about screen time. How it's like a dessert, and that's how it should be treated, and that's how it should be enjoyed. Um, also, I like how you spoke about the opportunity cost. Like you're okay. You're on the screen for X amount of time what could you have been doing with uh, like with that time instead because so, i remember in your interview you said and i didn't know this by the way that um children learn the best through play 
And I, ne- I never knew that. I never knew that it's how many skills they develop, both socially, like cognitive, like how to deal with people, all these kind of things. I never knew that the, the best thing for a child is to learn through play. So screen time is taking, obviously you're taking also away from that. But I think I, I, think I agree with you that this is a big problem and it is as time goes on because these apps are being developed to be more addictive and more intrusive and you know to keep you on longer. But what do you, I think the question becomes, what do you do when it's become the standard? Because I can imagine, like, I want to do this. This is the best thing for my child. I know the health risks and I know how this will affect them. Therefore, I'm going to limit their screen time. But I have the entire school of 200 kids, for example, that are messaging each other and communicating on this and becoming more technically literate and like better with technology. So does that? It's 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 a very t- it's a dice situation. It's because hard. It's yeah, because you need to and balance. And whenever it. I talk about this topic, I get people who with older kids, and they're like, "Let's wait until your kids are eleven, and let's see what you have to say about this. Let's see us controlling your kids when they're eleven or whatever." My my eldest is four now, so um, I have developed ways to control his screen time. So I I haven't bought him an iPad, just because I know that it just makes it much easier much more accessible when when he has his own control. We have one TV in the household and I have the remote control for it, literally. So I've removed all the remote controls and my remote is on my my phone. So it's an app that's on my phone. So whenever he wants to watch TV, literally mommy has to be in the house. Whatever he watches, the, it's in the in the living room everybody's watching it with us so he doesn't have and it's that is limited and when when he when he's off the screen i give him lots of opportunities of things and ideas to do so if you give the child if actually children would love to go outside to play if i tell him if he says no i want to watch more i'm like Kareem, what do you think we play hide and seek outside you and mommy he would never say no. He has never till now declined this offer. Of course, when they're teenagers, they might. I don't know. I haven't gotten to that point yet. Uh, but I can just imagine. So from now, I've enrolled him in football, in basketball, and in swimming. Because when you when he has his time full with these type of activities, then he wouldn't have time to do anything else. I know we're in a pandemic right now, but I urge parents to do as much as they can within the legal limits. So right now you're allowed in Dubai to enroll your child in soccer practice and for him to go to soccer. Do it. Whatever you can, you're allowed to go out for a walk. You're allowed to go out cycling. You're allowed to go to the park. Whatever you can, push your children to do it. And then whatever time that you have that you can't control it, fine, screen time. Then you're within normal, normal limits and normal times. When it comes to teenagers, I've got the theory Okay. On it. I don't know practically, to be honest, how to control a teenager's social media addiction. I still, because I want to try it first myself as a mom before I, you know, go and, and give lectures on how to control sure. it. But I'm just here to give you the, the 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 very detrimental effects of these, of screen time and social media time that you need to know as parents. Yeah, I think, I think that, the very good point especially with um with your child that i love that you're the only one who has the remote that must <laughs> so you have full control about everything that's fantastic 
Um, yeah. And like you said, if you as just, long as I can, I, I know I can't, I can't, I can't have a course. teenager and be like, "Oh, mom, you have to sign in." For, I can't yeah, do that. But course. as long as I can, I'm gonna try to use that. Yeah. yeah. But like you said, especially for kids, they don't know, like they don't know what they like. Like you don't. So give fill their time with these kind of activities because if their time's full, they're not even gonna be thinking about a phone or whatever. But on the point about teenagers because kids is one thing kids you can control like like we've talked about but teenagers is a different thing because literally it's like ingrained into the fabric of your like high school and middle school and snapchats and this and i think the problem is i don't think telling if i was i'm trying to think how would you communicate to teenagers to help them change their mind because it's the level of addiction is 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 crazy in my opinion but well, that's the thing Khaled. you yeah. said it, it's addiction right yeah with an addict let's say a drug addict would you allow them access to all the drugs and just tell them how bad drugs are or would you put them in a rehab center so yes you have to psychoeducate you have to inform but at one point you have to limit as a parent you have to put boundaries and say you're not allowed anymore they might tantrum they might hate you they might fight with you but this is your rule. Unfortunately, no one else is going to do it for you. Not the governments, not the app developers. You have to put your foot down and say, down, yeah. no, that's it. If it's drugs, would you would you be like, mm, she wants it. She's, she's crying for it. She's No, you would say. And a lot of parents are like, oh, they're not as bad as drugs. They are as addictive. It's the same circuit. The dopamine circuit that is used for drug addiction and sex addiction and gambling, same circuit. So yeah. it's as powerful. So if you want to limit or if you want to remove the addiction, you have to be a little bit forceful with some of these things. Yeah, I think you you you've made some great analogies today. It makes things so it makes things so clear. And like you said, you wouldn't give a drug addict access to all the drugs in the world and be like, you know, I'll just tell them it's bad because nothing's going to change that. So. It's, um, it's it's a, it's a it's a chemical reaction it's a feedback it's loop asked, yeah. it's their it's their body that's saying i want more i want it's the dopamine that's like yeah, oh yeah. give me more give me more give me more and that's why it's so powerful yeah 100 percent. no i totally agree i'm so curious to see what what would be the right way to address that problem in the future i don't i i don't know but uh we'll see as time progresses if something comes up that we'll be able to change that perspective um, Hanin, I want to be conscious of our time, uh, so I just have a few, uh, three more questions for you. So, number one, coming back to one of the first things we spoke about, as a child psychologist, like we said, you help, you know, child, like you, you help work with children and you work with parents. But obviously, you are also a parent now yourself. So, I'm curious, in now that you have kids, what is one thing you've learned as a now that you're a parent? that you did weren't aware of when you were just working with children did yeah. was there a realization or something that changed that of you course. had a perspective oh yeah. yeah oh yeah 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 uh the realization is there's the theory and then there's the practice okay there's the theory of what you should be doing as a parent the right and wrong and then there's life where you try as much as you can to do what you can with what you have and that's going to be good enough and you just have to go with it before having kids I was just like no it has to be this perfect image of parenting mm. and now I'm like well not really you know life is gonna throw a million you know 
things at you that you're going to have to just make do of just good enough. And that's, that's going to be it for the moment. So that is a very important realization that I have that with kids, it's yes, there's a theory and it's important to know the theory, but you can't apply it hundred percent. It's, it's just yeah. not possible. Yeah. I like how you said there's theory and then there's life. <laughs> I think that's the best, <laughs> that's the best way to describe it. And for my last two questions, these are questions uh, I need to ask all my guests. So number one, looking back, you know, over your career, everything you've accomplished, maybe even personally, what would you say you're most proud of for yourself? Uh, just juggling everything, I think, especially as a woman. Um, there's a lot of expectation from you. Uh, if you're working, you're expected to work like you don't have kids. And if you have the kids, you're expected to have kids like you don't work. So just being able, I think, to strike that, I think I'm doing it, strike that balance where as much as I can, I'm giving to my work, I'm being successful at work. And at the same time, I'm handling the household and as much as I can, of course, it's not perfect, it's never perfect. But that's that, I think that's, especially in a place like Dubai, where there's also a lot going on and you want to see people and you want to be places and you have to look a certain way. So yeah, I think striking the balance has been the most difficult and the thing that I, I think I'm definitely proud of. That's awesome. And I think that's un honestly, if I'm the, like the older I get, the more I'm learning is balance. Everyone like is trying to find balance. Balance is this mystical place that doesn't exist because you're never you're never going to be fully level-headed you're always going to be more to the right at one time you're going to okay we gotta go back left so it's just trying to find something that you know is comfortable for you and that works for you and that's awesome that that's how you feel because i don't think a lot of people feel that they actually have true balance and for my last question what is the message you'd like everyone to take home with them today uh to just be kind to yourself um, we're all going through so much. This past year has been oh, such so turbulent. Um, just do your best. Be compassionate. Be kind. Be forgiving. Be loving to yourself. That's very important at the end of the day. And it's a message that I try to implement every day. Just whenever possible to give yourself a break. Pat yourself on the back. You're doing your best. You're alive. You're kicking. You're well fed. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be kind be kind to one another be kind to yourself it's very important yeah i think that's a beautiful message and i think that's something that a lot of people um a lot of people don't do given you know give themselves enough compassion or enough of a break or like you said to just you're doing your best so as long as you know you're doing that that's that's all you can ask of yourself and you should be proud of that and you should be kind to yourself for that so no i totally agree and i think a lot of people can resonate with that message hanin i wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the show today this has been a fantastic conversation i've loved it i learned so much about child psychology and how you work with children and so on that i ne i never knew before and i think any parent listening to this or you know if you're planning to have kids whatever can take a lot from this episode so thank you so much for your time and for everything i really really appreciate it Thank you, Khaled, and thank you for your listeners. I hope this was helpful. I'm 100% sure it was. Guys, to everyone listening, thank you so much for your time. And as always, hope it helps. Peace.